welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Jordan Theory, owner and creative director at Dream Chase Media and policy consultant. We talk about Jordan's work on the front lines of storytelling and his films, including the Black Fatherhood Project, which provides a historical and present-day context to the structural forces impacting black families, and his new project, Grandma's Roses, which will be a series on YouTube focusing on the stories of grandmothers of color that was inspired as a tribute to his grandmother after she passed. Jordan discusses details of the stories these grandmothers shared with him about their lives and what this process was like for him. He talks about his goal of educating people and inspiring them to action. He also explains his policy work with the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color. Jordan shares how he got into grassroots storytelling and social justice organizing. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey Jordan, thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about the excellent work you're doing on the front lines of storytelling. So just to get things started, let us know what you're up to. Shimon, thank you, man. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on and excited to, you know, be a guest on this, uh, this really cool podcast you got going. What am I up to? Well, you know, about a year ago, I, I started uh, my own little consulting gig called Dream Chase Media. And our thing is to focus on storytelling that involves uh, creativity, culture, and community. And so I work with a lot of nonprofit organizations uh, to help them kind of tell their story of impact, right? and tell the story of the people that they are working with, tell the story of the change that they're wanting to make. Uh, and then I also have my own personal projects where I, you know, my passion is hearing people's stories uh, and with permission, you know, sharing what I hear with others in a documentary format. So I have one going right now that's focused on, on grandmothers. Nice, nice. And I should also add that you're one of the founders of this podcast, that this is a project you and I were going to do together, but <laughs> it just got a little tricky coordinating everything. But um, got to give you props to that and that you and I go way back. So it's real cool to see the evolution of your work over the years. And, you know, why don't you tell us about Grandma's Roses? Uh, yeah, the new project is called Grandma's Roses in tribute to, to my grandmother because um, I had lost her last year, right? And she passed really quickly. And, you know, part of my process in, you know, losing her and trying to understand and grasp and appreciate all of, all of what she did in her life and what she did for me, I wanted to, you know, talk to other grandmothers, right? And maybe part of it was just, I miss my grandmother. So I, I wanted to see some, some other grandmothers. But the, the idea behind the project was really to hear the stories of these women, uh, focused primarily on, on women of color who have, you know, survived a lot and contributed a lot to our communities, to our society, not just their families. And my interest in, in particular is kind of looking at all of the labor and the love uh, that these women put forth. And oftentimes, you know, we sort of take our grandmothers for granted. Right. We, we sort of, you know, expect them to be nurturing and kind and generous because so many of them are. But we also, you know, 
forget about so many of the sacrifices that they make. And we also sometimes forget about, you know, all the different things that they've survived. And, and part of that character that, you know, they developed as being so reliable and strong was, you know, out of, out of survival, right? It was not necessarily a choice. It was out of survival because of the sort of harsh realities of uh, systemic, you know, racism and sexism in, in this country. And so that sort of undergirds my, my interest in these conversations with, with grandmothers. So what's that, you know, what's that process been like in terms of traveling around the country and interviewing these grandmothers? Yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. It's been very enlightening, humbling, emotional. You know, I'm always surprised at the things that I hear uh, as much as the things that I don't hear, right? I'm coming in, you know, as a 36-year-old with a master's degree who works in policy, who works in nonprofit. Uh, so I have my own ideas about the lives that they've lived and, and what's significant. And, and then sometimes I hear something completely different. I think the, the thing that probably surprised me the most in these conversations even with, I interviewed both family and strangers. And with family and strangers, I heard a lot about what they've, the work that they've done. That, like when they speak of the, about the work that they've done, that seems to be what they've been most proud of, right? The thing that they really want to talk about is the job they had, you know, as a teacher's aide for 40 years with the school district or, you know, being a, a foster parent to, you know, 17 children, wow. right, over the course of 45 years, or even the work that they've done, you know, in factories and in, you know, kind of like more hard labor type of positions. But the, the pride that they had and the fact that they were able to, you know, keep those jobs for so long to, to put food on the table for their children, that's the stuff that they felt most, most proud about. The other thing that I was surprised uh, about was, the violence that they've experienced. So I know, right, that domestic violence is a huge issue. I know that sexual abuse is also a huge issue in that, you know, it's very common, right? One in three women will experience domestic violence at some point in their life. Well, I would say almost every single person I interviewed talked about their experience with domestic violence and or sexual abuse at the hands of, of, of a loved one. And it was not a question on my protocol. It wasn't something that I asked them. It's something that kind of came up when I asked about their relationships and maybe their, their husband or their previous husband or previous boyfriend or what have you. And, you know, it, it wasn't something that they necessarily made a point to want to bring up, but more so Oh, and this happened. And I, and I started to dig a little more and say, well, well, why was that? Why was he a bad guy? Can you tell me about that? And uh, that was the piece that really, for me, has really made me think differently about sort of what life has been like for, for women of my grandmother's generation and my mother's generation. So I think that that's a piece that, that stuck with me. Yeah, that's intense, really. Super intense. <laughs> yeah, and that they would open up to you and... It makes me wonder, like, how many people they ever told yeah. about that, you know, and what kind of support was there? Well, I will say, you know, there's there were instances where people, some of the women I interviewed said, 
I haven't told anyone this, you know, before they told me or after they told me. I said, I, my kids don't even know this about. Wow. And some of those women were strangers. And I think for me, that just speaks to how powerful and meaningful it can be to have someone ask you and want to know about your life and want to hear your story. You know, these women are not, uh, you know, famous for anything. You know what I mean? They're, they're just kind of everyday grandmothers, right? And so for them to be, to be approached and say, I want to hear your life story and I want you to walk me through it from childhood to now and tell me your, your greatest, you know, accomplishments. Tell me about, you know, the most difficult struggles. Tell me about the, the happiest, you know, moments of your life. That I believe has a, a healing aspect to it, you know, to be able to tell your story and put it in your own words and have someone take interest in that and find meaning in, in your own, in your life. And, uh, you know, I've gotten that feedback from, from the grandmothers as well. And, and so that's the piece that keeps me going and keeps me interested and, and fuels me to have, have more of these conversations. I will say though, after you have these conversations, like I try to do a few, like kind of back to back, like, you know, one Saturday, the next Sunday, it's a lot, man. Like the emotional, you know, all of that sort of energy is sticks with me at least for another, for a week. Right. And, and just processing all of what I heard. So now I just try to space them out because going back to back, it, you know, it just requires a lot of focus and a lot of emotional energy. But this is the work that I love to do. And I want to, you know, continue to build up my body of work of sharing, of sharing stories like these. Yeah. You know, so what's your plan with this project? You know, what are you hoping these stories do, you know, when you do release this project and how are you releasing this project? Yeah. So as you know, right in the past, I, I made a film called The Black Fatherhood Project and and that came out in 2013 and it was a feature length film. And, you know, I, I toured the, the country and showed it at a lot of universities and social social service agencies, et cetera. Um, and that was the kind of the original idea when I started interviewing these grandmothers that I would kind of go, go about a, that same documentary filmmaking process. Well, you know, that process took me seven years. I've been working on this grandmother's project for a little over a year, and I've decided to kind of go in a different direction um, because I want the, the content to get out there sooner. Um, so I'm actually going to be uh, sharing these publicly on YouTube and creating a YouTube channel, Dream Chase Life. That's where all the original content is, is going to live. And I'll be sharing these interviews with some narration and letting these women mostly just speak for themselves, right? And so uh, those interviews, you know, will be out after November 15th and beyond. And then you'll also, also be doing some kind of complimentary content on some of the other social media channels. But for me, you know, the power is in sharing these stories. And right now, YouTube is the, the best and most popular platform for, for videos. And so uh, second most popular site you know, in, in the world. So that's, that's where I want it to live. And, and I think it'll be great because it's also very accessible for older populations. And I thought about some other platforms, but I know that if there's, you know, one or two websites that people in their 60s, 70s, 80s know, it, it's YouTube. You know, my grandpa's on YouTube all the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so like, I know that that's one where it's going to reach that demographic as well. And that's also really important to me. You know, we'll put 
in the show notes links to that site and then look out for November 15th and uh, they can start seeing episodes on there. That's right. Yep. Perfect. So what's the, what's the goal of, I know your initial reasons for starting this project, you know, you shared that with the connection to your grandmother and then wanting to um, interview these grandmothers and share their stories. What are you hoping this experience is like for someone who's watching these videos? I hope that they have a similar experience that I had when I, when I met and interviewed each of these women, right? For me, I mean, you know, I was in the same room with them, so it's a little bit different. But uh, the things that I learned, I mean, I learned about the the history of, you know, this where they grew up, right? I learned about the the how family dynamics play out. You know, I learn about what it means to sort of, you know, be resilient. I learn about, you know, what it means to sort of go through a terrible loss, right? For me, I mean, listen, a lot of this is about me. I, I can't like, you know, like, <laughs> if y'all get something from it, beautiful, right? I, I want I want people to get something out of it. For me, these these interviews are making me a better person. These interviews are, are making me hopefully uh, a better, you know, father, a better husband. I'm not married yet, but maybe one day, right? These interviews, I think, are helping me understand historically, you know, the experience of of women in this country and to honor that and to do better because a lot of the problems that these women have faced have been because of men, right? And the decisions that we've made and the harm that we've created and the limitations that we've placed on others. And so, you know, that's sort of the indirect impact. I'm not sure if, you know, if I'm going to try to make that direct connection because I want people to interpret these things and take away what they take away organically. But I think for men, at least, that's, you know, I think that I hope that that would be an impact. Right. And it seems that the format you're going to have them in on YouTube, they can be, you know, utilized in a variety of different courses, you know, from uh, women and gender studies, ethnic studies, social work, psychology. I mean, it really could span quite a lot. Um, And then whoever, you know, educators and students can add to that conversation as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that would be an ideal, you know, sort of use of of this content. You know, I I try to make it as professional as possible and also have the, you know, insert the historical and social context so that people can make those connections with time and place, you know, with these women's stories. So yeah, and, and the community engagement opportunities, I think are infinite. Um, and I'll probably, you know, be doing a lot of that as well if everything goes as, as planned. But putting it directly out there in the hands of, of folks to use themselves is also, I think, the best move. With, with my previous project, it was a little more hands-on, you know, and so, so uh, this one, I hope to open it up and, and let it, you know, grow and, and live wherever it wants to live. Right. So speaking of the previous project, the Black Fatherhood Project, that still is available, correct? So I know that absolutely, like universities can, libraries can purchase that and have that, mm-hmm. and it can be used. And showings are available. And that film is a very powerful film, and it also came out of your own interest in understanding your own life, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, similar to the, your impetus for this one, mm-hmm. 
Um, and I was hoping you could just speak a little bit about that too. So listeners can learn about that project and possibly access it as well. Absolutely. You know, Shimon, that was that, that, you know, that was a 10 years of my life. You know what I mean? That film, that project. So the Black Fatherhood Project, I started when I was 23 years old, right? And just started graduate school and wanted something to work on over the summer. I wanted to make a a, a documentary film. Um, I took my, uh, you know, financial aid refund check, bought a camera, you know, bought a flight to to LA, uh, got a rental car and, and started driving around and interviewing Black fathers. The original idea was I want to counter the stereotype of the deadbeat Black dad by interviewing and uplifting these like, you know, stand up dads, right, that I know are out there. And so I, I started that way. And then the more I got into it, I realized this is cool, but I'm actually kind of ignoring the elephant in the room, which is why is there this stereotype of the Debbie Black dad? Right. Why is there this, this issue, right, in this conversation around Black fatherhood in, in the Black community? And yeah, statistically, it is accurate that, you know, basically two thirds of African-American children are born to a single parent household. So what's that about? And so I shifted, right, and started making a film that explored that exact thing and, and trying to answer that question. And the result is this, you know, long documentary that kind of walks the audience through the history of the Black family, kind of from Africa, coming to the United States, surviving slavery, and looking at all the different social and policy barriers that were put in place to basically disrupt and undermine the stability of the Black family. And so it's a very historical film. And, and then it also, it turns to the sort of contemporary Black dads and asks them, what are your, you know, what are your greatest challenges as a father? What are, what's the most rewarding experience of being a father? What do you hope for your children's future? And what, what do we need to do to address some of these issues of family uh, in the Black community? And so you know, I'm incredibly proud of my of, of my work on that film. I think it still stands up to, you know, today. Oh, absolutely. And it's accessible and we've shown it, you know, all over, right? And a lot of universities have purchased it and social work programs especially. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it is available. It's, it, it's on the platform Canopy, which a lot of universities, libraries use this, this platform called Canopy with a K. Uh, so it, it can be watched on there. And then it can also be um, accessed on blackfatherhoodproject.com. You know, I think it's so interesting that you started out wanting to focus on one aspect of, you know, dismantling this stereotype, right? And then there's no way to do that without getting into the historical context and really uh, how things came to be, right? Right, right. Yeah. And whenever we start looking at how things came to be, policy always comes up. Has to. Has to. Because as you well know, many, many policies have been put into place specifically targeting the African-American community. Mm-hmm. Targeting, I mean, in a detrimental yeah, exactly. way, yeah. right? Like the racial wealth gap would not exist today without numerous policies. Mm-hmm. So many. So... I'm interested in the connection between your storytelling and filmmaking and also your policy work, because you've done a lot of policy work 
over the years and you're still doing policy work. So could you also talk about that? Sure. I sort of started to dip my toe in that work when I started doing civic engagement, voting rights work at the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation way back in 2006 and was leading a a program for young Black voters called Black Youth Vote. And that's when I started to really get involved and and pay more attention to to politics and then had the opportunity to to work with uh, philanthropic groups around voting rights issue, uh, you know, democracy issues, uh, census and redistricting and learning all about that stuff and and helping foundations figure out where to put their money um, when it comes to investing in improving our democracy and fighting voter disenfranchisement. And so most recently, I had the great honor and privilege of of working at PolicyLink um, with the the founder, Angela Glover Blackwell, and, and my close colleague, Mark Philpart, with a special initiative called the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color. And that's where I really got to do more hands-on, direct lobbying on, on policy as it relates to education issues, workforce development, and intimate partner violence. And so, you know, like you said, if folks aren't talking about policy when they talk about the problems in this country and history of this country, then they're not really having a, a, a real conversation, right? Because policy undergirds all this stuff. Um, as far as I see it. And the work that um, I was able to be a part of was really supporting grassroots community organizations that are working with young people to be the leaders of change in their communities. And it was sort of my role to help connect them to the opportunities, uh, support their work to change policy, right? Um, And so a lot of it, a lot of stuff I was involved in was around the school to prison pipeline and trying to eliminate suspensions and expulsions for ridiculous reasons um, and, and things that kids are getting kicked out of school for you know, misbehaviors or not uh, abiding by the dress code or by challenging their teacher under the category of what they call willful defiance. So that gave me an opportunity to really see how much policy plays, the role that policy plays in everything that we do, and also like the process, right? And it's a complicated process, but it's also, at least in California and at the state level, incredibly accessible. You know, it's really not that difficult to get in those halls of power and have conversations with your legislators and influence their decisions, right? And to put forth ideas that work. And so, you know, I worked there and did that work for three years and still I'm doing some work with them as a consultant. Uh, and it's, it's the most powerful work I've ever been a part of. And uh, I learned you know, so much in that process. And uh, I, you know, it's, it's just unfortunate that people feel like policy is so inaccessible. You know, it feels like kind of a distant, foggy thing for, for most people. And it did for me for a long time, but it really isn't. Yeah, I think that's going to have to be a future episode of really breaking down that process so that people can feel like they have the skills. Because I think that is often the real barrier, one of the many, because there's a whole access issue, obviously, as well. Of course. But it's really just like not even knowing how to get started, Mm -hmm. you know, is what I think a lot of it is that like these people are just bigger than the rest of us. And therefore, they're untouchable. Right, right. 
Yeah, oh, that's right. And, and I think that, you know, universities could be doing a much better job of teaching people, uh, students about policy and about the policy process because it relates to every single, you know, industry and, and field that there is out there. And the people who are doing the work should have a voice in that policy that's being made that's impacting their work. I agree 100%. You know, I wanted to um, shift a little bit and talk about just your background and how you got into all of this. Because I think, you know, you shared a little bit about why you started both of these film projects. Sure. But you didn't really give the part before that, you know, about you and Mm -hmm. how that even came to be. So maybe you could share a little bit about that. Absolutely, man. Thank you for asking. I was wondering when you're going to (laughs) ask. What's your story? (laughs) Uh, Man, to give, you know, in a nutshell, you know, I'm a multiracial, you know, black kid that grew up in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. So you can imagine what that was like in the 80s and 90s, you know, where I was one of only, you know, a handful of uh, African-American kids in my school and uh, always noticing the difference, you know, always having the difference being pointed out to me, right? And I was a sociable person and I got along with people really well, but um, it created this hunger in me uh, to, you know, be more connected to African-American community uh, and issues and, and culture. And it also created, I think for me, sort of a a way of looking at the world where for me, it's always about kind of understanding difference. And also there's an internal sort of desire to reconcile difference, you know, through understanding, because I saw it in my own family, you know, very different worlds. And I always felt like the bridge between that. And so, you know, as I got into my career, social change work was, was the work that I wanted to do, but I spent my summers you know, watching three, four videos, films a day, you know, you could go down to the corner store. This is down in, in Illinois where I spent my summers and get three, three, rent three movies for a dollar. And so we did that every single day. And I was, you know, pretty much always just watching, you know, whatever black movies there were, right? From old black exploitation films to the Boys in the Hood and the Spike Lee joints. We know um, you were watching Hollywood Shuffle. And I, you know, I was watching Hollywood Shuffle. <laughs> Tommy! And so um, for me, it was like my connection beyond my, my immediate family uh, with Black stories and, and Black life was, was through cinema, right? And so I had this um, incredible interest in storytelling and, and cinema. And um, when I got to college, I got an opportunity to kind of, you know, dip my toe in multimedia and I fell in love with it. And I watched a documentary film called Life and Debt, which is about national debt in Jamaica and what the International Monetary Fund um, and the World Bank did to kind of restrict Jamaica's growth, right? And so that was like the film that made me want to do documentary films. And I went to University of Oregon and and had a a documentary film track. And so, you know, my passion and interest was and is in telling stories of people of color and black people in particular. And so that's how I set about making that first, you know, feature length film on black fatherhood. And it's been, you know, why I'm still 
pushing, telling, trying to tell these stories today and having fun. Yeah, man, I love it. I love hearing that story. And it's crazy that I've known you all these years and never knew that about that film that inspired you. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, we met at University of Oregon, mm-hmm. I think in the Multicultural Center. Yeah. That's yeah. where we first met. Been rapping ever since. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And 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 that's, you know, that was, I, I, I should just, you know, give a shout out to the Multicultural Center, to uh, Steve Morizumi, to, you know, all the homies there, because that's where I learned about organizing, right? And that's where I started to get involved in social justice is is at the University of Oregon with you and and our homies from from that time period um and that was you know super impactful it, as short of a time period as it was like for me two years it feels like it was such a huge part of my life still you know yeah and very transformative years yeah absolutely so as we're getting towards the end here you know i want to ask you what listeners can do to support your work, get involved in your work. Um, of course, we'll post the link to the to you, the YouTube channel. But is there anything else you want to put out there and you want to share while you've got the while you got the mic? Subscribe to the Doing the Work podcast. That's what you got to <laughs> do. Start it right back on you. And and yeah, no, you can check out the Black Father Project at blackfatherproject.com. And uh, yeah, I'm on I'm on Instagram Jordan Theory. And uh, holler at me. Cool, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your story with us and talking about the work you're doing. And thanks for doing the work. You know, this is a bit of a different episode than some of my other interviews. And I think it's really important because the work you're doing is so critically important. And you are out there on the front lines. You're going into people's homes, you know, providing a space for them to open up. To tell these powerful stories that then can be shared where people can learn, you know, based on other people's experiences. So I'm real appreciative. And I think this is, I think this was pretty cool. And I hope people appreciate this conversation. Thanks, Shimon. I appreciate you having me on, man. And, you know, I'm proud of the work that that you're doing with the podcast. I'm really excited. Um, I'm trying to follow your lead, man. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.